Anyone else have their Easter egg hunt yet? Okay, Sightsman, do you have your Easter egg hunt yet? Not yet? All right, you make sure you have it. Yes, the little man back there had his Easter egg hunt. Our Easter egg hunt starts at 11.30 for the Parker House. Well, probably 12.30 since I'm the pastor. Um, uh, so we'll do it right when we get home. It is good to be here this Sunday morning. Um, I kind of wish Josh didn't play that last song, last, because I'm a wreck now. Thank you, sir. Um, I love that song. That song, just, not supposed to cry on Easter, right? We have visitors. We don't want to freak them out. <laughs> that song means so much because that's the story of Christmas and Easter. That for God so loved the world so much that He loves us. Oh, how He loves us. And so this morning we come and we celebrate that. We celebrate this, this truth, not an idea, not a concept, not, not a, a future hopefully hope, but a real truth that He loves us. That He loves us more than anything else in all of creation. That when He created the earth and everything in it, that He said that His greatest creation was humanity, you and I. And we know that we are His greatest creation because He made us in the image of Himself. In our broken, sinful world, it's something we cannot comprehend or grasp. And so for Easter, it's our hope that we're able to stop and allow all the truths of Scripture to come flooding on us in such a way, not that we just go to family and friends' house to celebrate, but that we have moments like this, like Good Friday, like Monday, Thursday, that we stop and we celebrate and we say, He really does love me. So let's pray. Jesus, I thank You that You love us. And You love us more than we could ever imagine. And as we are here this, this evening, we, this morning, we are stopping before we go see friends and family and, and eat more than we should and just enjoy the beauty of Your creation. You have said that that You love us. And this morning, we're saying, we love You. I ask You that in our time together, that we would not be thinking about just going to service to, to do the right spiritual ritual, but rather that we would stop and truly look into to an episode where You stepped into Your disciples' lives. And you had met them. Met them in one of the toughest, most chaotic times of the Gospel story. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. It's so interesting because when we think about Easter, we think about what? New life. Hope. Spring. New birth. But when we really think about Easter, I think what happens often is that we have this anticipation and hope for that day, but what we are here to celebrate and worship is one of the most difficult parts of Christianity to grasp. It's the one part of Christianity that we think about that, that causes doubt within us, unbelief, distrust, not maybe having a, a full assurance of, 
of who this God is? Like, did He really love me so much that He sent His Son? You see, when we think about Easter, we all think about Jesus. And it's funny, I was thinking about this morning that in Philippians 2 it says, one day every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I'm thinking that, isn't that kind of happening this morning? Do you ever think about that? That every Easter morning, in some way, the world stops. Whether they believe or disbelieve, have a lack of of hope or trust in it, that that Easter is that, that one day a year that the whole world stops and says, Jesus is Lord? Is Lord? Is who? And I think the hardest part of the Easter message and even the hardest part of being a minister is, is believe it or not, Easter Sunday. That's the hardest message to deliver. Right, Bruce? Amen? It's the hardest message to deliver. But for me, as I was wrestling with this week, I'm thinking it's the greatest message to deliver. Because it's the culmination of everything that Jesus did. That what Jesus wants to do every single Easter It's a step into our lives that we may know Him. And when we know who He is, there's only one thing we can do is make Him known. Over this whole Lent season, we've been on a 40-day fast. Is anyone happy that it's over today? Huh? Amen? Come on. You can take up a little. Speak up. My son woke up this morning and drank soda first thing in the morning. Okay? He was jacked up. I woke him up and he started going... He woke up, he's like, soda, 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 soda. That means today, that boy's going to be in his room all day. He's going to be out of control. But during this time, we have, we have looked at Lent, and we have looked at it through Scripture, at these, this idea of kairos moments. Kairos moments are these divine encounters that Jesus had with individuals that caused them to ask two questions. What is God saying to me? And how will I respond? Because in every Gospel narrative, Jesus steps into someone's life and He reveals Himself and individuals have an opportunity to say, yes or what? No. And our hope was for this 40 days that, that you would be looking at Scripture, that as you're fasting, that as we, we put together a prayer book, that, that in your everyday life, you would have heard God say, do you see me? Do you hear me? Do you sense me? But I think oftentimes we like to see God in the good of life, Right? We like to see God in our promotions. We like to see God in, in our children when they're good. We like to see God when, when kind of everything is flowing perfectly because we can say what? God's blessing me. But I actually think oftentimes God speaks not the loudest, but the clearest. Is in our times of difficulties. And so what we're going to look at this morning, if you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20, We're going to look at when Jesus once again had come to reveal Himself in such a way that this individual had to respond. 
You see, this is one of those episodes in the Gospels that that's, this individual had to respond. When we've looked at other ones, these, these people kind of had more of a choice to respond. They could have said, yeah, I believe. Yeah, I don't believe. They could have just been on their way. But this is one of those Kairos moments that was so big, he was either going to fully acknowledge or reject, or reject the truth of who Jesus was and is and will always be. So let me read from verse 24 to 25. Would you follow along? And if you don't have a seat Bible, it'll be right there. One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. Little background. We know that when Omar had read the passage, the, the story of the tomb, that, that Jesus was risen from the grave. And as He was risen from the grave, he, he made Himself known to many people. He went to the disciples. Matter of fact, you know, we think about women, especially in ancient times and even, even the Far East, we think that they don't have much play in this world. They, they have to cover themselves. They're, they're secondary. But I find it very unique that the first individuals that Jesus revealed Himself to was women. Go woman power. Someone just clapped over there. Yeah. Okay. But it's interesting that that's what happened. And it's also interesting that, that the people who stood by His side on the cross were the ladies. But what Jesus had done once He was risen to life, He revealed Himself to many, many people. The disciples. His closest individuals. But there was one who was not there. His name was Thomas. And so all the disciples had, had heard and seen and, and had a moment with Jesus in such a way that they, that they physically were able to, to see Him and, and physically say, He's alive! Look at He's right there! But for Thomas, he hadn't had that opportunity. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe unless I see the nail wounds in his hands. Put my fingers into them. That's a really bad scene. And place my hand into the wound in his side. You see, who was this guy Thomas? He was one of the twelve disciples. He was a fisherman like most of them. Tax collectors, fishermen, that type of individual. Kind of the, the rough people of the community. And Thomas was a fisherman. You see, oftentimes when we think about the Easter story, we, you know where I'm going with this, that, that he was the one that was doubting, questioning who Jesus was. We often think that, that this was the first time that Thomas ever doubted Jesus. But that's not who that's not what Scripture says. Matter of fact, Thomas had doubted on more than one occasion. More on two occasions. You see, Thomas was a very calculated, strong-willed individual. Remember the story of the, the feeding of the 5,000? Whether you've read Scripture a, a hundred times or you've never heard it before, we've all heard this story of, of Jesus feeding 5,000. Well, the actual number would have been about 15,000 because they were only counting men. So men, women, and children. And these people had lots of kids. 
Not two, not three, not four, not eight, 15, 20. There were little tribes all over the place. Kind of like the Parkers from old. Everyone called this a tribe. We just had so many Parkers around. And if you weren't a Parker, you just kind of blended in with us. And at that scene, the disciples were trying to get everyone away. Push everyone away. Jesus, we're tired. Jesus, we're hungry. Jesus, haven't you done enough ministry today? Haven't you healed enough? Haven't you just done enough teachings? And and you've blown everyone's mind and, and they're not leaving. Why didn't they leave? Because they wanted to be in His presence. So Jesus said, let's feed them. And you're the one who spoke up and said, it is impossible. It was Thomas. There was something about Thomas which is so interesting because Thomas had this unique ability. I mean, think about this. Here you have this calculated, strong-willed individual who seems to have this, this bent to constantly doubting Jesus, and yet, he gave up everything. He gave up his livelihood. He gave up his career. He gave up everything to follow Jesus. And yet, at certain periods and moments, he doubted Him. He saw Jesus walk on water. He saw Jesus raise the dead. Not on one occasion, but on two occasions. You see, we often forget about that. We've seen Him make the blind see and all these different things. And for some reason, Thomas would always find himself being tripped up with unbelief. It's impossible. There's no way. It can't happen. And I find that even in his pessimism and his negativity and his doubt, he continually followed Jesus all the way to the cross. You see, maybe his doubt in the past was like, that's crazy. That's impossible. I'll see it when I believe it. But here is where Thomas, where all the rubber had met the road. All the rubber met the road. All the, no, what did I'm saying? I'm confused. Set it backwards. Yeah, you're having a hard time saying it too, right? Yep. You know what I mean. The rubber meets the road. Bam. Got it. I mean, think about this. The one Thomas loved was put to death. The one Thomas loved was brutally murdered. The one Thomas loved that when they had to wrap him up and put him in a tomb was unrecognizable. You see, some of us have seen the passion of the Christ and and we watch and we're like, there's no way that's even possible. Maybe you saw the movie, The Son of God, like, man, he was beaten, ripped apart. Do you know in a crucifixion when someone was crucified and beaten like Jesus? You wouldn't even have recognized him. His body would have literally been ripped off. His face would have just been torn apart. And it's hard for us to think because when we think about death sentences, 
In many ways, they're neat. And they're clean. As clean as death can be. But for them, they were so brutal. And, and Thomas is, is crazily thinking like, how can he be alive? Nothing, not even the power of God, could restore him. And yet, all along, what was Jesus saying? Two days, three days, four days earlier, four days earlier, Jesus had said, here's what's going to happen. I'm preparing you. You see this bread? It's broken. It's torn apart. It's shred into pieces for you. You see this cup? I hate to give you this imagery, guys, but this is my blood. Not a drop, but all of my blood. Is gone. It's been poured out for the sin of this world. When I think about Thomas and oftentimes these other disciples, I, I don't put myself fully in their place of, of, of imagine losing someone you love more than anything. And imagine someone saying, taps you on the shoulder and says, Guess what? They're alive. As much as you would have hoped they were alive, there's part of you that can't even go there. You see, oftentimes we think about doubt, that it's bad, right? It's almost like having children that we, we try to convince them, like, you got to believe, you got to believe, you got to trust. You have to trust me. And we almost fear our children or fear others into having to believe and not allowing doubt to be a catalyst to their faith. Let me read you a little quote that I, I just love. I put it up on Facebook this week. It says, If doubt leads to questions, if doubt leads to questions, questions lead to answers. And when answers are accepted, then doubt has done good work. You ever think about that? Are we allowed to doubt? Are we allowed to, to question, does he really love me? Did he really do what he said that he has done? Is it possible that Jesus really was risen to life? I mean, all of Thomas's life, he was told that there was a Messiah. That there was a Messiah. Over 300 prophecies Thomas was told about. That this was going to happen. And his whole life, especially in that, that tight-knit Jewish community, that's what they lived for. That's what their whole worlds were around. Every party, every celebration, every feast was getting ready for this day. And yet, he still struggled. You see, I come from the old school where sometimes you weren't allowed to doubt. 
You weren't allowed to question. And it was just, just believe, you'll figure it out. But I'm telling you this morning, maybe the best thing that is going on in some of you and why you're here is because doubt wants to lead you somewhere. But the problem is, is that when you allow your doubt to turn into stubbornness, which then blocks faith from finishing its course. Did you hear what I said? If you allow your doubt to turn into stubbornness, you may miss what faith wants to allow your doubt to do. And if we're all fair with ourselves, we have many, many excuses to why we don't trust. Why we don't trust God. Why we don't trust a spouse. Why we don't trust a parent. Why we don't trust a friend. Why we don't trust authority. Why we don't trust our neighbors. I mean, think about it. How many of us really know our neighbors? How many of us have really gone across our street and said, hey, you want to come over? Why? Because someone has hurt you. Something has turned into stubbornness for you to trust others. Look how powerful doubt is. Otherwise, you would be open and willing to love your neighbor as who? Yourself. And so for all of us, doubt has a role. Doubt has an effect on us. You see, oftentimes we think about this God, this higher power, that the moment we stop believing, or the moment we do something wrong, or the moment we mess up, that He just cuts us off. I mean, think about it. Who should be the one person in our humanness that Jesus should push aside? Really, two people. Peter, right? The knucklehead. We'll talk about him next week. And Thomas. Hey, Jesus. Imagine the conversation. Hey, Jesus. Thomas is struggling. Well, where is he? He just doesn't want to see you right now. But I thought he doesn't believe in me. He just doesn't want to see you right now. I mean, think about that. I did all this for him and he won't even see me. I die on the cross. I take an extra lash for him. I'm mocked. I'm spit on. Not only did they put a crown in my head, but they, but they took a rod, a staff, and, and put, put it in my head and wailed it into my head that it was stuck and it couldn't come off. You see, if it could have come off, it would have fallen off when he was on his way to the cross. I do all this for Thomas. For three and a half years, I give him livelihood. I put him on the adventure of his life and he doesn't want to see me. Right? That's how we think about God. We think that God is like that with us. We think, man, I've really messed up. I've cheated. God won't see me. I've lied. God won't see me. 
I hate my neighbors. God definitely won't see me. I've abandoned people. God doesn't want me. But you see, this is the power of the Easter message. Let's continue in verse 26. And here's the significance. Eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time, Thomas was with them. You see, there's a, a, a period of a week where, where you know these little encounters that Jesus is having, but it's not really calculated like, okay, so I'm on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. They celebrated on Wednesday. But we do know this, that Jesus was meeting with the disciples and for some reason, Thomas would not show up. For some reason, Thomas was unwilling to see him. Did he feel guilty that he left the cross? Did he feel guilty that in the garden, like, like maybe doubt was his, his kind of his, his scapegoat. Maybe in the garden when they all scattered, he, he felt like he abandoned Jesus and he's like, I'm just going to get reprimanded. But eight days later, the disciples, including Thomas, the eleven, not the twelve, because Judas was no longer around, the eleven had gathered. And check this out. This is how much God loves us. The doors were locked. But suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Now here's the significance. When Jesus ran into the disciples and the women, and everyone was ready to like tackle him, and hug him, and embrace him, what did Jesus say? Do not touch. I'm not ready. Not emotionally. That's not Jesus. He just wasn't supposed to be touched. Some of you guys got that. He wasn't able to be touched. The time is not right. And what does Jesus do with Thomas? Imagine being the one who wasn't allowed to touch Jesus. He must love Thomas more than me. What did I do wrong? Start going into like that place of weakness. He says, Thomas, don't touch it. Put your finger in it. Nasty. Thomas, come on. I know your heart. I know your deepest struggles. I know you're not believing. And I know maybe some of your doubt is, is guilt and shame, so right here, touch me. You see, that's the beauty of our God. Our God, the one that we believe and the one we serve is a God who's in heaven that says, I love the world so much that I'm going to send Myself to them. Himself being Jesus. I love them so much that I'm going to go through every temptation they've gone through. Wealth. Fame. 
wanting to be wanted. I'm going to go through everything to show them how much I love them. And the beautiful thing is is that Jesus revealed Himself to to the worst of the worst. The only people He rebuked were the religious leaders who were purposely trying to not let others believe. Those were the only ones He rebuked. And when people met Him, they had these kairos moments. Not when they met Him that they felt like all this guilt and shame. Oh, I'm such a bad... I'm so negative. I'm so... I've done everything wrong. That when they saw Jesus, they had this kairos moment. What is God saying to me? He loves me. And my response is to follow. You see, that's what He did with Thomas. He loved... Thomas so much that he stepped into Thomas's world and he squashed the doubt. You see, Thomas's doubt may have been on that borderline eight days later to turn into stubbornness and want, not allowing faith to do its work. But Jesus says, I'm going to rip apart your doubt. I'm going to show up and I'm going to love you right where you're at. I'm not going to scold you. I'm not going to reprimand you. And here's what Thomas says. My Lord and my God. Not just my Lord, meaning my King. My God. It is true. It is real. It's everything that the the Old Testament had said. All 300 prophecies are wrapped up in this moment. And you see, that's what Easter is about. For many, Easter is about that that disciple moment when you're just like, woohoo! Easter. I mean, literally, I woke up and I said, every day should be Easter, right? We dress nice. We try to be a little nicer to the kids, even if they're having a rough morning. Not saying any of my kids had that this morning, but I'm just saying, if they were having a rough morning, we try to be a little nicer. We try to give that extra special kiss and make sure that we tell our spouse, like, you really look beautiful today. We do all the things that, that we're supposed to do every single day of our life, right? Imagine that. Imagine if every day was Easter, but the reality is every day is Easter because every day He has risen. And every day He gives us life. And every day He wants to step into our world to overcome our doubt. But one day a year, this is our opportunity to also invite others to deal with their doubt. Because for some, this is the only day that they, they may step in and hear a message. And I want to say, if you're here and you haven't been to church in some time, thank you for coming. We love you. And if the only thing you hear this morning is Jesus loves you more, then Easter has done its work. You see, Thomas wanted ta- tangible proof. Let me do a little apologetics for you, right? Anyone know what apologetics is? It's defending your faith. 
It's speaking to the truth of what others say is not. That's simply apologetics. Speaking the truth to what others say is not. Simplest form of apologetics that I literally just made up because I don't know how to explain it any other way. Four things. His teachings. Do you know Jesus' teachings are the greatest teachings the world has ever seen? The most quoted person in the history of the world is Jesus. And many moons ago, our foundation, Western Civ, not just the U.S., but, but Europe, was founded on the teachings of Jesus. Do unto, other, do unto others as you would want done unto you. Who made that up? Jesus. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who said that? Socrates? Jesus. I mean, these are things that we are, are saying every day that we hold truth to. That he may become more and I might become what? Less. That's what Jesus said. His works. Do you know some of the miracles that Jesus had performed were never done by anyone in all of humanity? Do you know the one that that never, ever, ever was ever seen was the healing of a boy born completely blind? There's accounts of other people all throughout history that have healed people that were blind, but never, when you study healings and miracle and power in all religions, the only one who had healed a boy who was born completely blind was Jesus. He not only raised one individual from the dead, we know of two. His character. His character was so exemplary that when they put him in a court of their own law, they had to make up lies about him. His enemies could find zero wrong with his life. And his fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, he fulfilled all 300 and he did 29 in a single day. Do you know Good Friday, the day he went to the cross, he fulfilled 29 prophecies. Now imagine getting the pulpit out of you and say, okay, one more, how do I do this one? You can't do it. I mean, he couldn't choose his parents. He couldn't choose certain things to manipulate prophecy. Where he was born, how he was born, how the angels sang, all these different things. He fulfilled it all. And his resurrection... You see, if he only appeared to the 11 disciples, we could say, oh, that's easy to manipulate. He only went to the ones he knew. The only ones who would say yes. Like, would you really want to follow someone your whole life long and then have to say, yeah, I really messed up. He was wrong. Let's kind of figure out a plan. Okay, we said we rolled the rock away. We pretended. We, we, we made this, uh, the, the soldiers get drunk, right? Made them get drunk. Rolled the rock away. Shh, be quiet. We'll take them out. No. Couldn't do that. Couldn't do that. He fulfilled it all. And he not only appeared to the 11, but he appeared to over 500 individuals. But let's be honest. But I haven't seen him. In many ways, we have a tougher time than Thomas. Yeah, if I saw a dead guy come up and he had holes inside and I had to put my hand in it, like gross, nasty... 
But I would believe. That's why Christianity is dying out. It's, it doesn't really work for us. In our post-modern era, we're so sophisticated. We're so smart. We figured it all out. Look at our computers and technology. You know what I would say to that? Who gave humanity their minds? Our Creator. Our Creator gave us our minds that we can make Samsungs and Apples and iPads and this tablet and that computer and this car and all these things. Who put that in us? He gave us His mind. Let me give you another little quote that I love by Thomas Adams. It is the office of faith to believe what we do not see. See, that's what faith is supposed to do for us. And it shall be the reward of faith to see what we do believe. Look at that. Now let me read you the words of Jesus. Jesus said this to Thomas. You believe because you have seen. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Blessed are those who believe who haven't seen. So here's how we know the very presence of God. You see, there's God sent His Son. And before He died, what did He say to His disciples? He was going to what? Give them a gift. His presence. The Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying the same Spirit, the same presence, the same power that lives in me is going to live in you. When I die, in some ways, you want me to die. Because all the power and all His presence are wrapped up in me. It's all kind of bottled up and I'm ready to explode. But the moment I die and the moment I come back to life, my presence, my power is given to you. And God says that we can know Him because of Jesus by the presence of of the Holy Spirit. You ever have that moment when you are doubting and, and everything's going wrong and all of a sudden something in you just gives you that, you're okay. You can do it. I'm with you. You're not alone. Let's go. Let's start something new. Don't do it. That's the presence of Jesus. And we get to know Him that He is real by the power of His Scripture and the Bible. You see, here's our Kairos moment this morning. Who is Jesus? He is the risen one. I love saying that in a school. He is the risen one. I love it. That yes, we are not going to be apologetic that, that Jesus is the risen one. But because He meets me in my doubt, the Kairos moment, I will trust Him. I was talking to a, a friend of mine. They had come over to hang out with one of my kids. And they have been really struggling physically. Uh, just with some, some pain and some back issues. And, and she said, 
I believe him. I trust him. I love him. I follow him. But my prayer is just help my unbelief. And so here's what our Easter celebration and communion moment is. Jesus, help my unbelief. You see, the power of Jesus changes a life forever. And you have, may have moments of doubts, but when you allow the power of Jesus to come into your life, you continually to overcome that doubt. And so on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body that's broken for you. And he invited his disciples to eat with him. And then he took the cup of his new covenant and he said, this cup, this is no longer that Passover lamb, that blood that's put over your doors, but, but it's a new covenant that in me, life is eternal. Drink of it. And so this morning, we want to, follow, we want to invite all who follow the way of Jesus to come and take their bread and dip it in the cup And here's what I want you to pray this Easter. Jesus, overcome my unbelief. If you are here and you're visiting, you're saying, that's what I've been looking for. This is your Kairos moment. This is your defining moment where you're able to stop and say, Jesus, I'm believing. And I want to walk with you. I invite you too to come up to the Lord's table and take and deep, dip and eat and, and let this be your salvation moment. And if you're here visiting, you're just like, you know what, this is, this is great. But I don't want to feel like I've got to come up. I'm saying, then don't. Sit back. Let the words that were spoken in the worship wrestle with your own doubts. So I want to invite the band to come up and Jeremy and Joe to come up as we go into communion. And I want to pray for you. Jesus, we come this morning to celebrate that you love us so much that you not only have gone to Thomas, but this morning you are coming to us that you have come to step into our doubts so that faith in you can run its course. In Jesus' name, amen.